For his latest book and his long career make a colorful and seamless whole, the course of human development, both poetic and pragmatic. In fact, one of the chapter titles in today's book, Ideas of Order, reads, Desirable Development. Our speaker is referring, of course, to the sequence of Shakespeare's sonnets, uh, but if he will give me liberty, I may apply that title to his own life. For Dr. Rudenstein has led a life doing just what he loves, and to do that is a pursuit that I think we all agree is a desirable development. It's a life of three wonderful sequences. In the first sequence, the young Neil Rudenstein read Humanities at Princeton, served in the Army, did a master's at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, and capped his studies with a PhD at Harvard, uh, where he was deeply researching and eloquently crafting a dissertation which turned into a critically well-received book, Sidney's Poetic Development. At that very impressive opening sequence, Dr. Rudenstein's second sequence comes as something of a surprise. Until we realize how much it had to do with American academic development. After starting his professional career by teaching English and American literature at Harvard, he then switched tracks, going back to Princeton to become a dean and then provost, followed by a couple of years as a VP at the Mellon Foundation. Suddenly, he was back in Cambridge at Harvard as the 26th president of the university. Um, as the president of Harvard uh, in his decade at the helm, perhaps his two brightest accomplishments were his splendid development of the African-American Studies program and proving himself to be the university's finest fundraiser, bringing in an astounding $2.6 billion. After all that, anyone could be expected to retire and rest on their laurels, but not our speaker. Dr. Rudenstein instead chose to open a third sequence and pursue, once again, his professional love. He has headed up Art Store and the New York Public Library, and he has also returned to his very first focus, English Renaissance literature. Through it all, from his first work on Sir Philip Sidney to the rich work on Shakespeare's sonnets, he will be speaking on momentarily, from African-American studies to America's greatest university and the greatest public library, Dr. Rudenstein has given us eloquent expressions of the twin themes of personal and institutional development. So it is with a great privilege that I welcome Dr. Neil Rudenstein. Thank you and good day. I'm so pleased that so many of you braved the weather. I thought for a while we should huddle around a fireplace instead of sitting in a room like this. Um, but I'm very pleased to be able to make some remarks today about my book on Shakespeare's sonnets. The main question that I address is whether there is a detectable order, a development, something analogous to a plot. Uh, with identifiable characters in the sequence so that the sonnets can be read as a coherent work with a substantial degree of unity. Very briefly, my own answer to this question is yes. 
There have been, of course, several, many explorations of this issue, and I think it's fair to say, however, that so far critics and scholars have been, on the whole, skeptical about the idea that we have anything more than a collection here of uh, not exactly randomly, but not exactly orderly uh, poems. Uh, we might ask why this question is such a difficult one to answer. Well, first of all, there are 154 extremely dense, complicated poems. They're difficult. Uh, there's no absolutely clear narrative, obvious, self-evident plot, so to speak. If there were, the problem would have been solved a long time ago. Uh, but that isn't to say there isn't something. Uh, it's simply that it's not absolutely on the surface. In addition, there are many individual sonnets that don't necessarily follow one absolutely in sequence. That is, it looks as if some were misplaced and as if you make a jump from one to another that doesn't necessarily make sequential sense. Though I would say those are relatively limited uh, in number. Nevertheless, they're enough to trip on and to make you wonder uh, whether this is all happenstantial or not. Nor do we have any reliable external evidence to fall back upon. We don't know if, if the sonnets as we have them were arranged by Shakespeare himself. We don't know whether he authorized or any played any part in putting together the 1609 only existing authorized or non-authorized edition. It could have been pirated rather than having Shakespeare put it together. We don't even know the identity of the mysterious Mr. W.H. to whom the poet's poems are dedicated. So if you look for something to hang on to, as it were, outside of the poems themselves, there's nothing. There's simply no evidence uh, whatsoever that's useful, at least for this question and almost for any other question you want to ask about the sonnets. Nevertheless, it does seem to me that there are a significant number of important incidents in the work involving the same personages, the same characters, the poet, his young friend, who also becomes a type of patron for the poet. There are more than one rival poets who would like the young man to be their patron. And then there's the dark lady or the mistress, so-called, uh, who is at first, at least, the poet's mistress. So there are four main either individual characters or sets of characters, the poet, the young man who's the patron, the rival poets, and the mistress. Uh, they're all vying in one way or another for one another's favor, depending on which part of the sequence you happen to be on. It also seems to me to be clear that the relationship among the characters is not at all random. Uh, there is, in fact, a progression amounting to a form of narrative. It has a clear beginning, a complicated middle, but a decisive end. I was also intrigued by an essay by Richard Blackmer in which he stated that the sonnets reveal something close to, quote, a desirable development. For skeptics, Blackmer suggested that they try reading the sonnets in reverse order. If that were done, he said, the poems would immediately turn themselves around by their own very force. 
Well, I tried the experiment, and I quickly concluded that Lackmer was right. I seem to be missing a page here somewhere. Here we are. Let me begin by summarizing what seemed to me to be the nature of the relationships among the main personages, as well as the critical events as they unfold in the sequence. Along the way, I'll point out at least some of the intelligible patterns that emerge from the work as a whole so that we can kind of keep track of them as we go along. Let me start with the personages. For example, it's clear by Sonnet 10 and certainly before 20 and then thereafter that the poet is in love with the young male friend to whom the sonnets are addressed. It's equally clear that the poet's affection is to some extent reciprocated and that the young friend also adopts the poet as his favored or chosen writer. As I mentioned before, the friend becomes, in effect, the poet's patron. The nature of the love relationship has been characterized in very different ways by different scholars, as you might imagine. I myself think that the poet seeks a love commitment that's effectively defined, as he says in one of the poems, as a marriage of true minds with the understanding that sexual activity will be reserved for women. This is made relatively explicit in Sonnet 20, in Sonnet 20 but that does not prevent the inevitable reinterpretation of the matter over and over again. Uh, fair, and it's fair enough. It's complicated enough, as all these poems are, to allow for any number of interpretations. The young man, however, he soon reveals himself to be highly self-centered. And this quality, as well as others, make it clear that his commitment to the poet is much less than the poet's commitment to him. As a result, essentially all of the sensual affairs, and there are several of the young man, are viewed and felt by the poet to be forms of betrayal or infidelity. These feelings are heightened by the fact that the poet is older than the young man, less handsome, socially inferior, and as he says on one occasion, almost self-despising. He fears that he will be entirely deserted by the youth, and he also wor worries whether his poetry is actually worthy of the patron friend. He is, in short, extraordinarily vulnerable, whereas the young man is invincibly self-secure. A word about the mistress or dark lady. She appears early in the sequence as the poet's own mistress and then reappears as a major commanding figure in the final poems of the sequence. There we discover that not only the poet but also the friend is entirely under her spell, enslaved by an uncontrollable lust for her in spite of her utter promiscuousness. Well, if we shift from the main characters and the relationships, we can begin to review some of the major incidents that form the spine of the sequence. The first 17 sonnets have struck most recent readers as very puzzling. The poet is attempting to persuade the young man to marry and produce a son not exactly the way in which most sonnet sequences or indeed any other poems open. 
But he does this not in order to preserve the young man's family's presumed wealth and standing, nor to follow the religious injunction to increase and multiply, both of which were perfectly standard reasons for trying to urge your child to marry, but purely to preserve the youth's image and extraordinary beauty. This allows the poet to praise the young man, ultimately expressing love for the youth, while discovering in the process that his feelings are to some extent reciprocated. Because the poet becomes the friend's favorite writer, poetry, rather than a child, ultimately becomes the means whereby the youth's beauty will be made to last well into the future. At this point, I'd like to turn to one well-known sonnet, which comes precisely at this early point in the sequence. If there's a genuine case for making out the fact that this is a sequence with some unity rather than just a collection, it should be the fact that individual poems should gain added meaning by being placed in their proper context rather than being read simply independently as if from an anthology or a school textbook. So let us look at a poem that we all know and is very famous, sonnet number 18. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometimes declines by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Well, when read as a single poem on its own, the meaning of this sonnet seems fairly clear. The poet praises the beauty of another person and insists that neither the person nor the beauty will ever die. They'll be forever immortalized in verse. If there's something unusual here, the subject of the poem seems to be described in only the most general terms, even rather vague terms. Analogous sonnets starting other sequences usually contain something called a blason, a detailed description of the beloved's eyes, hair, lips, and face. But this is obviously omitted from Shakespeare's poem, and we may well wonder why. Well, if the opening is somewhat surprising, there are, of course, other more radical surprises to come. We soon realize that the sonnet is not addressed to a woman, but in its context to the young man. Moreover, the sonnet comes immediately after the moment when the poet has been chosen by the youth's favored writer. So these lines are not only a celebration of the young man's beauty, but they're also a type of performance by the poet 
intended to please the patron, exhibiting all of the poet's talent and skill, which is part of what it is, what the role is, if you're chosen as the poet of a, of a patron. In view of this, we might think more carefully about the opening of the sonnet. Is it simply a conventional beginning or an actual question from the poet to the friend, sort of saying, I can do anything you prefer. Would you like a poem about spring or perhaps something about a summer's day? Shall I compare thee to a summer's day or not? Performance inevitably calls into play some element of manipulation. The poet necessarily assumes a role and he uses his art to affect his audience, predominantly in this case, the young man. But once performance and manipulation enter the scene, it becomes increasingly difficult to distinguish between the poetry of true feeling and love, not so easy to detect in any case, and that of mere flattery. The danger of slipping into flattery is, of course, a familiar one in Elizabethan literature, but it reaches greater depths and raises more serious moral questions in Shakespeare than in any other writer of the period. In fact, it becomes one of the central themes of the sonnet sequence, culminating later in the so-called rival poet series. In addition, Sonnet 18 is unusual in both its tone and style. The poem is marvelously paced and lucid. It moves wonderfully in a measured way toward the finality of its couplet. The poet is not at all doubtful that his verse will conquer all obstacles and will immortalize the young friend. Actually, many poems in Shakespeare's sequence are in fact more powerful, more profound, and more moving than this one. But that is very much to the point. Shall I Compare Thee expresses precisely what's appropriate at this very early stage in the sequence. Time and death are momentarily defeated. Love has not yet been tested or blemished, nor its gold complexion dimmed. It's a moment of quiet triumph for the poet when everything seems to be within his control, reach, and grasp. Well, I wanted to look at this on it in some detail because an analysis of it throws light on how we ought to approach each sonnet in the sequence. That is, we need to think of the poems as parts of a developing situation in which the poet's voice is continually responding to a set of particular circumstances. Most of the sonnets are not, of course, considered to be extraordinary or great in the way that our anthologized favorites seem to be. But that's because the large majority of them should be viewed as if they were embedded in a continuing conversation or predicament, rather than if they were general statements intended to stand alone and end with a triumphant conclusion or a grand couplet. Once we read them as elements of an unfolding drama, we can see why so many of them appear to finish as if they were incomplete or inconclusive. They are so and were intended to be. Even the famous grand sonnets, as we've just seen, reveal their full meaning only when we analyze them in context, where their preceding sonnets and the following ones illuminate them in ways 
that may be very surprising and that we might otherwise not su suspect. Not long after Sonnet 18, two major events occur in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, the young friend, the young man, is essentially unfaithful to the poet. In the first, he simply vanishes in the company of unknown others who appear to take him away, leaving the poet alone as if the spirit of mutual love commitment were entirely broken. The poet accuses the friend of having deserted him, and then, perhaps very surprisingly, the young man actually quickly returns. He repents, and he also weeps in contrition. In short, there's a clear reconciliation and recommitment on the part of the two men. This pattern, an act of infidelity followed at some point by a reunion, is intrinsic to the very structure of the sonnets and will be repeated several times in the development of the sequence. The next major incident is very different from the first. In Sonnet 40, we discover that the young man has actually taken the poet's mistress away from him, an act of betrayal and also usurpation. The poet has been robbed, yet he's in effect compelled to accept this development because he feels, given the depth of his love, that he has no other alternative. However, he now protests much more openly and much more vigorously than he did on the first occasion, and he characterizes the young man as lascivious grace. The phrase sums up the youth's beguiling beauty as well as his apparently unfettered sensual appetite. He appears to be simultaneously unfaithful and magnetic. The magnetism wins out, however, and the poet reaffirms his love, saying, kill me with spites, yet we must not be foes. In the set of poems that follows, the poet remains deeply conflicted. On the one hand, he continues to praise the young man, still in love, still admiring the youth's beauty, and still valuing very much his role and status as the youth's favored writer. On the other hand, he feels sufficiently undermined that he sets out, in effect, on a kind of quest to try to discover the real nature of the friend. Can he trust him at all in the light of what has already happened? Or is the friend fundamentally faithful, yet given to unexpected and uncontrolled moments of great weakness that result in periodic acts of infidelity? These and other possibilities reveal themselves in the next group of sonnets. There, the evidence of the youth's habitual waywardness begins to tip the balance, and the poet begins even, becomes even more aware uh, even more bold in his responses. Other observers, not the poet himself, but others have begun to blame the young man and they compare him to a beautiful flower that has been infected and has taken on, quote, the rank smell of weeds, unquote. Surprisingly, the poet agrees and says that the youth has become common, that he is too willing to associate with anyone, 
and to give himself over to others far too easily. This indictment is in no sense a conclusion to the poet's quest, but it brings us further than any other characterization to date, any other critique. At this point, we find ourselves on the brink of one last act of betrayal by the patron friend, beginning at Sonnet 76, a threatening poetic rival, a mere flatterer, appears on the scene, and the next ten poems play out a drama in which there is a form of contest to win the favor of the patron. As it turns out, this is not really a battle between the poets. Instead, it's a test of the young man's capacity to understand whose verse is actually expressive of genuine love and commitment. And of course, alas, the youth fails the test. He chooses the rival. Of all the youth's offenses, this is by far the most lacerating. The rival takes the poet's place, another robbery and another act of usurpation. The poet is essentially deprived of everything that he values most, his role as favored writer, and at least temporarily, his close relationship with the young man. He responds with a sonnet of farewell, although it's one that does not entirely relinquish the hope of an ultimate reunion. But for the moment, the poet moves steadily toward a group of sonnets in which he describes the friend as cold, indifferent, and especially someone whose outward beauty serves only to cover up his sins, quote unquote. He describes the young man as a mansion that is possessed by vices. Well, vices and sins are not words we have encountered before, and they seem to unmask the youth, describing him definitively. They bring to a climax the quest to understand the young man's nature. A major line of development in the sequence has come to a provisional end. But crucial as this moment is, it does not represent the last word about the relationship between the two men. It leads, however, to a critical prolonged separation between them, an estrangement that becomes apparent in the next set of poems where the poet portrays his absence from the friend as, quote, a bleak winter. What freezings have I felt? What dark days seen? What old December's bareness everywhere? The young man has apparently had similar feelings because these sonnets clearly signify not only that there has been an estrangement, but there's been also a reunion. The mutual recommitment is celebrated by the poet in a series of marvelous lyrics that praise the friend's beauty and even his ultimate constancy, all of which will be preserved forever, it's said, in the poet's verse. Well, these poems, it's important to note, are markedly different from any previous ones in the sequence and could not have been placed earlier because they're written in a tone that seems weathered, as if they accepted and were able to absorb all the tribulations of the past. The newly reestablished relationship is now measured not in terms of weeks or months, 
but rather from the perspective of years. Three years are explicitly mentioned, during which a mutual commitment has somehow been sustained in spite of everything. At one point, the poet apologizes to the young man for not having written for some time sonnets of praise and love to him, and he refers to a past when, quote, our love was new and then but in the spring, unquote. Now, having recovered his poetic voice, he writes very movingly, to me, fair friend, you never can be old, for as you were when first your eye I eyed, such seems your beauty still. Three winters cold have from the forest shook three summers pride. Three beauteous springs to yellow autumn turned in process of the seasons have I seen. Three April perfumes in three hot Junes burned since first I saw you fresh, which yet are green. Ah, yet doth beauty like a dial hand steal from his figure and no pace perceived. So your sweet hue, which methinks still doth stand, hath motion, and mine eye may ye deceived. For fear of which, hear this, thou age unbred. Ere you were born was beauty's summer dead. If we look now back for a moment, we see that there's been a series of betrayals on the part of the young friend, and despite the reunion that I've just described, it should perhaps not be surprising that the poet at some point would begin to reveal his own faults and vulnerabilities. In fact, most of the remaining sonnets are devoted first to an incident in which the poet deserts the friend in search of others, although he soon returns repentantly, and second, a prolonged affair with the mistress or dark lady where sexual desire leads the poet to uncontrolled lust, in spite of his recognition that this pursuit represents a total moral collapse. In short, the first main section of Shakespeare's sequence is devoted to the faults of the young man, and the remainder, except for one brief interlude, to those of the poet. In this way, the sonnets begin to achieve a kind of symmetry and balance that increases our sense of their overall structure. If we turn to the poet's betrayal of the friend, we see that it not only happens suddenly, but that it leads almost immediately to a return to the young man with a plea by the poet to be forgiven. The poet offers a series of excuses for his offense, and these are mostly unpersuasive rationalizations but they eventually lead over the course of 12 sonnets to a much deeper recognition on the poet's part of the nature of genuine love and commitment. For example, the poet no longer mentions ever again the beauty of the young friend at all. Beauty comes to be seen as something transient, although it was of course the primary motive for the poet's love throughout the first 108 sonnets. Nor does the poet ever again mention the capacity of poetry to immortalize the youth. What happens during the span of life itself, rather than what happens afterward, 
in the poetry or otherwise, becomes the central subject. Indeed, at this point, in the wake of his own serious lapse, the poet begins to conceive of love as something that can and must be sustained during the course of one's existence in spite of all serious human failings, including infidelity. He comes to realize that time and its vagaries can, as he says in Sonnet 115, time can creep in betwixt vows and change decrees of kings, tan sacred beauty, blunt the sharpest intents, divert strong minds to the course of altering things. This recognition that even the strongest vows can suddenly be broken leads the poet in the very next sonnet to assert so powerfully that true love does not alter when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. The famous lines declaring that love is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken define love in a way we have not encountered before as a kind of invincible determination, an act of willpower to remain absolutely true and constant in the face of all changes, all mutability. As events turn out, the poet, in spite of his later obsession with the mistress, does in fact remain committed to the friend to the very end. A conception of love has emerged that is vastly different from and much deeper than the appealing but untested innocence that had long ago led to sonnets like, Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day? After the poet's act of unfaithfulness, there's a final reunion between the two men. And this is followed by a small number of sonnets that focus completely on the poet's devotion to constancy in love. He defies time by stating that he himself will never change, and he offers the friend not poetry per se anymore, but something more hallowed. Let me be obsequious, he says, let me be obsequious in thy heart, and take thou my oblation, poor but free, which is not mixed with seconds, knows no art but mutual render only me for thee. These lines bring to a close the poet's sonnets to the young man, and they represent the poet's most profound effort to bring about a genuine marriage of true minds, mutual render, only me for thee. The last part of the entire sequence concerns the poet's effort to win back the favors of the dark lady or mistress. He first declares that everyone believes she epitomizes true beauty itself. He then describes her as the fairest and most precious jewel. Soon, however, he begins to discover her deceitfulness and promiscuousness. Nevertheless, he continues to pursue her simply because he cannot control his desire. In several poems, he rebukes himself for his lack of constraint recognizing that his eyes and passions lead him on, despite all that his better judgment tells him. Indeed, many of these final poems are efforts on the part of the poet to analyze his dilemma without being able to resolve it.
This predicament leads to a moment when he essentially unmasks the mistress in a way that parallels his earlier unmasking of the young man. The poet now says of her, my thoughts and my discourse as madmen's are, at random from the truth vainly expressed. For I have sworn thee fair and thought thee bright, who art as black as hell, as dark as night. This revelation does not, of course, lead to a change in either the poet or the mistress. Lust and a form of madness continue to rule to the end, although there is one final twist, the discovery that the young friend, the young man, is also in thrall to the mistress. He too cannot resist her, and her complete possession of him represents one more loss, one more theft, one more robbery that the poet must bear. Well, let me conclude by tracing the ideas and themes that seem to me to endow the sonnets with a discernible order, a development that has some of the elements of drama and some of narrative. First, the sequence demonstrates the progression from a time when a mutual love between the poet and friend, a potential marriage of true minds, prevails. This love is then deeply compromised, first by the faults of the young man and later by those of the poet. Eventually, both give in, not merely to intermittent acts of passion and infidelity, but to an irresistible lust in their relationship to the mistress. In short, the sequence reveals a movement from an early period of faithfulness and love through a series of major lapses to a complete loss of all values. The poet and young man, man both experience a symbolic and an actual fall from the grace of the potential idealistic state that existed in the beginning of the sequence to a final situation in which both suffer what the poet calls a kind of hell from which they cannot escape. The central section of the sequence is devoted, as we've seen, to the poet's quest to understand the nature of his friend, who is alternately faithful or inconstant and largely unfathomable. I've already described in some detail how this quest proceeds. The poet's confronted by a series of infidelities, and he responds more forcefully and boldly to each successive one. The last, when he describes the young man as a mansion of vices, is so fierce that it provokes a lengthy separation between the two, bringing a major line of development in the sequence to a climactic close. Only a prolonged absence and estrangement, as we've seen, is sufficient to revive mutual feelings of deep affection, leading to the series of sonnets different in tone and perspective from any of the other poets' earlier verse. There's a partial parallel in the sonnets to the mistress when the poet declares that he once considered her fair and bright, but later black as hell and dark as night. A third significant theme concerns the steady loss or dispossession of all that the poet values most. This is a pattern that we find in several of Shakespeare's plays, beginning with Richard II and stretching at least as far as King Lear. In the sonnets, the poet suffers his first great loss in a very early poem 
when nature herself steals the young friend, a poem I haven't had a chance to discuss. Later, unknown others entice the young man away, and the poet cries out, he was but one hour mine. Next, the friend takes possession of the poet's mistress, and the poet declares, I do forgive thy robbery, gentle thief, although thou steal, thou steal me all my poverty. Still later, a rival usurps the poet's place. The poet's deprived not only of his role as chosen or favorite poet, but also the close relationship he's had with the young man. He writes, thus have I had thee as a dream, thus flatter, in sleep a king, but waking no such matter. Although this loss is also temporary, the young friend is ultimately and definitively taken away from the poet, enthralled to the mistress. This incurs near the very end of the sequence. Him have I lost, writes the poet to the mistress. Thou hast both him and me. And the poet then summarizes the full extent of all his deprivations and dispossessions in another poem to the mistress when he declares, me from myself thy cruel eye hath taken, and my next self, meaning the friend, thou harder hast engrossed. Of him, myself, and thee I am forsaken. Finally, as I've suggested, the poet's conception of love changes in a significant way during the course of the sonnets. Even as late as Sonnet 108, the beauty of the youth and the poet's ability to make that beauty eternal are celebrated. But in the wake of the poet's own unfaithfulness, he recognizes that beauty is transient, that even his own vows can be broken, and that any genuine commitment to another person must withstand all the vicissitudes of life, including the loss of beauty and indeed any alterations, removals, or infidelities one's own or someone else's. Only formidable determination, the capacity to continue as an ever-fixed mark that can brave all tempests, only that capacity can sustain a love that may create a marriage of true minds. Thank you.